You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you so much. And for Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. And here is what is ahead this hour. It's a big week for your money. We've got earnings, the jobs report, and the Fed's decision on interest rates. A cut is not widely expected right now, but one of our guests says not cutting now is a big mistake, and he'll tell us why. Plus, North Carolina's state health plan will stop paying for the obesity drug coverage that it had been covering, and that may be good news for one company. The CEO of that firm will join us ahead. And Red Sea disruptions could drive demand for one area of the commercial real estate market. We'll tell you where, but we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu. He's got the numbers. Hey, Dom. All right, so we got a fairly relatively calm market right now for the S&P 500. It's been a relatively tight trading range. It's currently up about one-tenth of one percent, up about six points, 48.96 the last trade there. We were up roughly 11 points at the high and maybe down three points or so at the lows of the session. So at least tilting towards the middle end of that trading range. The Dow Industrial is just about flat on the session, down one-tenth of one percent, 38,075. The Nasdaq Composite really pacing the advance, if you want to look at it that way, up about one-half of one percent, 63 points to the upside, 15,518 the last trade there. A key market that saw a lot of action bullish this morning that has since faded has been the crude oil market. We saw some highs that we haven't seen over the course of the last couple of months on U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate. It's currently down one and a half percent, but it was actually solidly higher earlier on today on some of those Middle East tensions kind of starting to incrementally get even more intense with soldiers dying from the U.S. side of things in Jordan, close to the Syrian border. That did push those crude oil prices higher at one point. But as you can see there, they've backed off from those levels. We'll keep it on crude oil. And then as Tyler mentioned, massive week for earnings. Corporate earnings wise, it will be the busiest week of corporate earnings for the S&P 500. And the names that really matter, the heavily weighted ones will factor in the most. On Tuesday and Thursday, you're gonna get earnings reports from the like of those magnificent seven type stocks, like Microsoft, like Apple, like Alphabet, the parent company of Google, Amazon and Meta platforms. Each of these stocks is gonna have their spotlight on them throughout the course of this week. So Ty, keeping on that mega cap technology trade, a big factor in those fundamental catalysts, either up or down for the markets in the coming days and weeks. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks very much. See you here in the next hour. Meantime, investors have their hands full with earnings this week, but we're only 48 hours away from the Fed's latest decision on interest rates. Steve Leisman here now to uh, set the scene for us, Steve. Hey, Tyler, yeah, one way to think about the Fed is this. They've done their final maneuvers on the balance beam. It's now in midair to execute the landing, and no one quite knows if they're going to stick it. Judged by the inflation numbers so far, the past few months anyway, the routine has gone pretty well. All three major gauges, PCE, Headline, Core, and even Core Services X Housing, are at or below 2%. The six-month annualized core rate has been below the Fed's 2% target for two months running now. And all of that has come, surprisingly, with growth above potential and the unemployment rate barely budging. So, Why not cut rates right now? Well, staying the Fed's hand, judged by what they've been saying uh, from that immediate cut, is concerned about the sustainability of the decline in inflation, growth and employment still remaining strong, with particularly concern about uh, wage growth and risk from, of course, the Middle East conflict, which could lead to a new inflation surge, hasn't so far. The Fed, most of all, doesn't think it'll help the credibility or the economy by cutting rates and having to reverse course and hike again. So it wants to be very sure. Markets have now given the Fed some flexibility. There's just a 2% chance of a rate cut at this meeting, 
49% for March. That is down from a near certainty of around 80% at the last meeting. You can see that certainly rises to all the way to 99% by June for that cut. Now, the Fed's path to its landing is full of uncertainty. Strong growth could give it time to execute the soft landing, but rate cuts need to be need to work into the economy. And you still have those past effects of rate hikes still dragging on growth. And you can do a routine, Tyler, a great routine, as you know, but if you blow the landing tie, you could end up off the podium. It's absolutely true. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the global tensions that you, you mentioned there. Um, how does the Fed weigh such things as disruptions of shipping in the Red Sea that could affect oil prices uh, and certainly the price of goods coming to market? You know, there's a little bit of um, uh, just concern that, you know, we're having deja vu all over again. The, the rise in shipping costs was part of the recession or, or part of the inflation that happened in the post-pandemic era. But the, the issue, Tyler, is they I think they're going to see this for now, at least, as being isolated. They're going to watch it for a while. I was really interested in uh, Dom's report because we do keep seeing this, that you have these uh, spikes in the in the price of crude and then they come back down. And I think we've talked about this, but the story, again, is the amount of domestic production we have in the U.S. that seems to uh, keep a lid on just how far up oil prices can go. But the Fed's going to watch it and there will be concern about uh, uh, some of these higher oil prices, again, feeding into certainly the headline. And they'll watch if it feeds into the core. All right, Steve, thanks very much. And we'll wait and see what happens on Wednesday. Probably nothing, but it'll be interesting nonetheless. Steve Leisman, thank you. Our next guest says the Fed should be cutting rates this week, but they won't. He sees the ghosts of the 70s in 2021 haunting Jay Powell, but warns that a late pivot could lead to an even worse horror story. You got the picture. Joining us now, Tom Fitzpatrick, Managing Director of Global Market Insights at R.J. O'Brien. Tom, welcome. Uh, so, so what are the historical uh, allusions back to uh, the 70s and 2021 that have you believing that the Fed will misstep here? Hi, Tyler, and thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I, I think when you look back to the 70s, obviously, and certainly at the start of the cycle, the Fed and a lot of other people, for that matter, um, focused in on the 70s because that was the last big inflation surge. Um, but there are a lot of material differences. There are similarities, even in terms of, of the uh, Middle East conflict. Um, but when you go back to the 70s, we saw the oil price surge by a factor of about 17 times. So it was very sticky for a very long period of time. But when inflation got out of the bag this time, that was the reference point the Fed was using in terms of their past mistakes and the fact that they didn't get inflation under control. Uh, and this came after 2019, when they were also talking about the mistakes that they made during the global financial crisis, not easing quickly enough and then choking off the recovery, the jobless recovery too early. So unfortunately, a lot of the times Fed policy is a function of adjusting for prior mistakes. Now, we saw that in 2019 when, in fact, they were very uh, impulsive in starting to cut rates and, and cut aggressively during COVID, as they said that they should do. But unfortunately, that was actually very successful. And the mistake then was that as we saw inflation rise, and in particular, you know, you saw three months annualized, six-month annualized inflation rates, just as we're seeing the opposite now move up. The Fed, having been very successful in seeing the economy pick back up, the markets pick back up, employment pick back up, should absolutely have reined in much earlier. And uh, ex-Fed member Bullard made those comments earlier this week. Uh, and therefore, as a consequence, 
where we sit today when we see exactly the opposite, when we see, as was mentioned earlier, three-month annualized, six-month annualized rates coming down, when we see the bones of the employment report maybe not as strong as as it would be thought to be from the unemployment rate, uh, as we see a situation where nominal growth is falling, it, it's clear that interest rates are way too high now. They won't cut, obviously, this week. We, we've said that already. Um, but they have everything in their arsenal to argue why they should cut in a preemptive fashion, because history clearly shows that when you wait too long, the impact of monetary policy changes takes time and you get caught behind the curve. And I think if the mm -hmm. Fed does wait too long, they, they will get the same situation again. So what, what I sense you're saying here is that higher for longer, that phrase, is sort of the new uh, transitory, that inflation will be brief and, and unsustained. And the risk here, just as it, wa as it was, I think you would probably argue, on, in, the, in the period of the transitory phase, is that, they, is that they wait too long to take the appropriate action. And in that case... Uh, they allowed inflation to take hold at a greater level than it otherwise would. And in this case, it could be to slow the economy past the stall speed. I think that's 100 percent right, Tyler. And, and they said that themselves. You know, when they revisited monetary policy in 2019, they realized that being preemptive was very important in making sure that the least amount of damage was taking place. But we know they don't want to make the same mistake twice. The mistake they made in 2021 was not getting inflation under control. So it's not a level playing field. And they've said that themselves, so I don't think I'm saying anything new. They've said that at the margin, they would prefer to be too late rather than too early, which I think almost guarantees, unfortunately, that they will be too late. Yeah. Let's talk about if they listen to you and they start to cut, let's say, in March, how how many rate cuts would you anticipate this year? Or do you think they'll be very uh, patient and surgical and wait and see what happens? How far down do you think rates could fall this year? So if they go early, obviously, on the mantra of you know going quicker, that should help and could possibly allow them to be more cautious in terms of cutting rates. Obviously, the market has been pushing for rate cuts well in excess of what the Fed itself would, would feel would be warranted. Uh, and when we look at some of the charts we look at, it does suggest levels of yields that are more consistent with an economic downturn mm -hmm. than they are with a soft landing. I think the danger is that because we took rates probably a little bit too high and because we have held them up there, and, and if you look at the feedback loop, inflation is low, but high rates have, have a lot of negative impacts on the Fed, on its balance sheet, on regional banks, on the Treasury in terms of its funding, et cetera, that I think are already filtering through. And the soft landing dynamics of the savings rate and the employment picture are drifting away. So I think the danger is even if they start in March, let's go back to 2001, the first five cuts were 50 basis points each. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even have a really deep recession then. So I, I think the danger is that already we should be cutting and it will actually force them to do more. But it's going to be very much on the basis of whether or not this idea of a soft landing is true. I personally think that we're in danger of having something a little bit less optimistic than a soft landing. In which case, let's not forget, as on the way up, we shouldn't look at number of rate cuts always presuming they will be 25. Yeah, if yeah. things do deteriorate, we can get there a lot quicker 
with 50 basis point cuts without having to see the six or seven interest rate cuts that people are talking about. Yeah, that, that, that is an interesting approach to it. In other words, you, you do fewer, but you do bigger. Uh, Tom. And you have more information between each of them, of course. Yes. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll have you back soon. Tom Fitzpatrick of R.J. O'Brien. Coming up, North Carolina cutting coverage for obesity drugs in its state-sponsored health plans. So will more states follow suit? And could it open the door for a different group of drug makers to benefit? We'll speak with one CEO who's banking on that one. Plus, one analyst says shipping disruptions in the Red Sea could drive demand for commercial real estate right here in the U.S. She will join us to connect the dots and tell us where investors might find opportunities. As we head to a break, here's a look at the Dow. Near session lows, erasing a 61-point gain and now down by 33. The S&P and NASDAQ still in the green for the day, ever so slightly. The 10-year yield just below 4.1%. The exchange returns in just a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. A big blow for some patients taking weight loss drugs such as Wagovian Zepbound in the state of North Carolina. Starting April 1, North Carolina will stop paying for obesity drug coverage in its state health plan as the costs soared to $100 million last year. In 2021, the plan was paying for nearly 3,000 people to take weight loss drugs, but last year it paid for nearly 25,000 people. Our next guest runs a company that is uh, hoping, hoping to capitalize on some of that news and make some of these people its clients. George Hampton is the president and CEO of Curax Pharma. Mr. Hampton, welcome. Good to have you with us. Happy to be here, Tyler. You say, uh, among other things, that this is going to hurt patients uh, uh, in North Carolina a great deal, but it may not really affect your company. It might even help it. Explain. Well, you know, obesity coverage is pretty rare. Right, so only one fifth of the commercial patients actually have obesity coverage, and we know CMS currently does not cover obesity at all. And so we've we've stepped up back in 2019 and created a Cure Access program, where patients can actually receive the the product for $99 cash uh, per month. And so that's still 75 plus percent of our business. So we, we're trying to bridge this this gap between a lack of access. Uh, for patients suffering from obesity and uh, until a time when the when the insurers and, and the government comes around and, and starts covering your the, treatment the is a pill as opposed to some of those well-known, whether it's Zepbound or Wagovi, which are, are injections, right? Yours is a pill. Uh, and what are the what have the results been with this pill? In other words, what does the average patient lose in terms of weight? Yeah, so we've been we've been on the market since 2015, right? So this is this is this has been around for some time. Um, in our clinical pivotals that are in the package label, uh, patients lose uh, up to 25 pounds, 4.4 inches off their waist, um, up to 11 plus percent of their body weight. So you know it's a very effective medication. The the coverage of medics medicines uh, depends in large part, doesn't it, on the declaration that a a condition or uh, an affliction is a disease. Is obesity a disease or a condition? Obesity is a disease, and it's defined now as a disease. Unfortunately, we as society do not yet treat it as a disease. And so that's becoming more and more prevalent to do so and start to treat it as a disease uh, in, the, in the most recent years. But we still have a long way to go. Why is it, or does it appear, or why does it appear, I guess is how I would like to phrase that, that 
Sometimes insurers or programs push uh, patients to the most expensive treatments rather than the less expensive treatments. Why is that? Am I right or am I, I think, full of it? Well, I think you're right selectively. You know, I, I think the, the, the healthcare system in, in general has done a great job, society in general has done a great job of controlling diseases cost effectively, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, et cetera, right? But we don't start in those diseases with the most expensive medication. For whatever reason in obesity, uh, I think it's probably brand awareness and just the lack of understanding of obesity as a disease. Um, certain health plans in certain states like North Carolina have decided to start with the most expensive medication, which is which is contrary to how we as society treat so every why, other disease. So why is that? Why, why is that? You, you mentioned something that occurs to me, and that would be effective marketing on the part of pharmaceutical companies either to practitioners, mostly to practitioners, but also on the airwaves like CNBC or Nightly News or whatever, where these drugs are widely advertised. Well, these new meds are exciting, right? I mean, the GLP-1s are going to make a, a complete sea change in the ability to treat obesity. And they have their place. Um, but as you look to Europe, and we see kind of Europe three or four years ahead of us, they don't let anyone first line have the most expensive medication. You actually have to go through what we would call step there in the United States, what they call in Europe more therapeutic-based um, uh, rationale or, or, or value-based type of, uh, of approach. So um, I think we'll get there. This decision in North, Car North Carolina points out we, um, we're behind and we need to learn more about this disease. And I think as society figures it out, we won't have to take drastic measures like banning all Obesity medicines are not covering all obesity medicines so, as well. So happened. your drug, your medicine, what is the branded name of it? I'm sorry. Contrave. Contrave. It, its results are comparable to those of the uh, GLP-1s or, or, or not necessarily? There's not been, there, there's not been a head-to-head -head study. Mm -hmm. And so we can't compare them head-to-head. -head. In individual trials, the GLP-1s are more effective at, at uh, driving weight loss. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's very similar to other disease states. You know, people with obesity don't start in class two or class three or severe obesity, right? They work mm -hmm. their way over time. The disease mm -hmm. progresses over time. And in society, we failed to intervene when the people are early in their disease state. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's an opportunity to start curbing this disease early with cost-effective medications. Yeah. And then for those people who are further in disease state, you know, start to start to use the more powerful medications. So, so I asked a question, is, is obesity a disease or a condition? And you said emphatically it is a disease. What makes it a disease? What's the, what, how, how does it fit under that definition as opposed to something that is more benign, uh, I suppose, a condition? Well, they, I point you to Dr. Acosta at the Mayo Clinic, mm -hmm. who's done an incredible amount of work on this, on this topic. And he can, he can identify four different types of obesity, the underlying phenotype of a patient that they're going to be more likely to, to, obese, to be obese over time. Mm -hmm. So when we can identify that, it's, it's very similar to the way we diagnose hypertension or type 2 diabetes mm -hmm. or any of the other mm -hmm. chronic diseases. Um, we're just, you know, we're, we're still learning a lot about would, obesity. Would your, let, I'm skipping around a little bit, and please forgive me, uh, yeah. George. The... Um, could your company develop one of these uh, GLP-1 drugs? Are you working on something like that or, or something that is next generation to contrave the drug you have? Yeah, great question. So, you know, GLP-1 uh, pipelines are rich in clinical development. I think there's seven, eight, nine of them right now. Um, obviously, the two largest companies, both Lilly and Novo, have, uh, have uh, GLP-1s on the market. It's not our intent to, to, uh, to develop a GLP-1. Mm -hmm. 
our product works differently than GLP-1s, and so we're reinvesting in uh, second manufacturing sites around the world. We're, we're investing in a once-a-day product because we think that would help patients significantly be more successful with the product. And so we, we like the space we're in. We like the way our product works. We have a long IP life, and um, I think the GLP-1s are going to do just fine without us in that mix. <laughs> Thank you very much, George. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for answering all my questions. George Hampton Pleasure. of Curax Pharmaceuticals. All right, coming up, we are kicking off the busiest week this earnings season with a look at three under-the-radar names, including this one. It's a key barometer for the economy, but excluding airlines, it's the worst name in the transports over the last year. There, I said it. There you go. The worst non-airline transport stock. Uh, we'll reveal it ahead. Plus, Alphabet shares are trading near an all-time high ahead of earnings tomorrow afternoon. We'll look at the numbers the street's watching for and one company to watch as well. Welcome back to The Exchange of Markets right now. That uh, Dow gain has uh, become really de minimis now, up four points, basically flat on the Dow. At its high, it was higher by uh, 61. At its low, negative 48. Uh, let's look at some movers this hour. The hydrogen manufacturing supplier Bloom Energy is down 8% after Bank of America downgraded that stock from neutral to underperform. The firm says it now sees revenue growth through next year as flat instead of accelerating, and that will cap the stock. Remember, Bank of America initially downgraded the stock from buy to neutral last month, saying hydrogen expectations are too high in the near term. Shares are now down 26 percent since that downgrade and on pace for their worst month in nearly two years. On the flip side, here are some of the names hitting all-time highs today. There are quite a few. You know them. Uber is one, Chipotle another, Ross and AutoZone all-time highs. Now to Pippa Stevens for a CNBC News update. Pippa. Hey, Tyler. The former IRS contractor who leaked former President Donald Trump's tax records to the New York Times was sentenced to five years in prison today. Prosecutors say that Charles Littlejohn had abused his position and weaponized it for his own political agenda, sharing private tax data to news organizations. Littlejohn said in court that while he was sincere in his belief, he made the decision knowing he would end up there. Japan's nuclear lunar lander has regained enough power to conduct its mission more than a week after it initially landed on the moon. The lander ran out of electricity because its solar panels were at a wrong angle due to a tumble after landing on the lunar surface. And while she's nominated for her 10th Grammy nomination this year, Joni Mitchell will perform at the awards ceremony for the first time on February 4th. The announcement comes as the legendary musician slowly returns to public performances after suffering a brain aneurysm in 2015. Tyler, back to you. Some wonderful songs from uh, Joni Mitchell. Remember them well. All right, coming up, one area of commercial real estate could be a surprise beneficiary from the shipping turmoil in the Red Sea. We'll speak to one analyst who will tell us where. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. A record $544 billion worth of commercial real estate debt comes due this year. According to the data firm TREP, and loan maturities will only continue to rise, estimated to hit nearly $3 trillion by 2028. 
Those eye-popping numbers increasing the possibility of defaults as owners are forced to refinance at higher prices. And that is weighing on some of the big commercial real estate players. Shares of Collier's, a global real estate services and investment firm, down about 6% so far this month. But the company still sees plenty of opportunities out there, even in the distressed office segment. Joining us now for more in an exclusive interview is Gil Borak, CEO of Collier's U.S. and Latin America. Mr. Borak, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, are we overstating the worries about debt uh, maturities and repayments that are in the pipeline? I think so. Um, there's no question that there's going to be distress coming. Uh, the signs are all there. But I also think that we will see banks, banks and other lenders continue to work with borrowers uh, to work through the situation. And we've seen that historically. So uh, the sort of the doom and gloom that's out there, it's not to make light of it, but it is to say that there are pathways uh, that will be um, less less drastic than maybe what we're hearing in the media today. I guess some I guess some uh, firms and banks have worked out extensions of uh, of debt and leases. That would be one way to mitigate the problems. Is Am I right? That, that, that's correct. And we've seen a good bit of that in 2023. And we've also started to see uh, repricing of certain assets, buyer and seller equilibrium is being reached, which also helps in terms of starting to move volume. It's sort of a more realistic uh, take on pricing certainly helps the market. So while there may be some distress, I hear you say don't over don't get overwrought over it. That's correct. And also, uh, you have to remember that certain sectors like office, which which have a secular issue since the pandemic, will be more impacted than other sectors uh, like industrial and multifamily, where the fundamentals are much better. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that, because when people talk about commercial real estate, they're inclined, I think, to think of it as a monolith. It definitely is not. I mean, there are all different kinds of commercial real estate. I suppose the one that has attracted the most attention and the most concern in recent years has been office. Tell us how that is faring. Um, that is correct. And that obviously was uh, against the backdrop of the pandemic when folks were forced to work at home. But over the passage of time now, we're seeing a more a normalization in office. Um, it, it's not to say that we've gone back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of office attendance. Everybody knows that that, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, but we do see folks coming more and more so coming back to the office, whether mandated or voluntarily for cultural reasons. That, that's pretty common um, that you'll see folks coming back for for uh, the, the, the culture in the office and the collaboration in the office. And as the economy has slowed, uh, employers have been more likely to mandate return to mm -hmm. office because there's not as much competition with other companies that might be more flexible. I, so it's stabilized. I'm thinking, too, that the office market is is highly localized. In other words, it, it may be immensely healthy in in Houston, where my friend and colleague of yours, Bob Parsley, does business, or in Miami, but it may not be as healthy and robust in San Francisco these days. And then there's the difference between Class A properties and Class B properties. Talk me through the regional and class differences. Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. And even through the pandemic, just with different um, uh, cultural uh, ph uh, phenomenons in parts of the country, the South was always stronger. There was always mm -hmm. more attendance, even during the pandemic in places like Florida and Texas, less so on the coast. 
uh, and that has continued. And we do see definitely see variety uh, across the country. San Francisco, you mentioned, is obviously one of, the, one of the weakest office markets because there's a lot more work from home. There was a lot more work from home with tech companies there. So it depends on the industries and the locations for sure. But in general, we are seeing improvement uh, in terms of return to office across the board. With regard to asset classes, there was a flight to quality, class A, and even some high quality class B, high quality meaning good locations, maybe refurbished class B, is also more popular than, than, uh, than those that are, that are outdated like uh, lower class B and class C. The flight to quality is such that if you take a city like New York with the new buildings on the west side of Manhattan, mm -hmm. they're pretty close to 95, 97% occupied, so they don't have any issues. They're amenitized, they're new, and there's high demand for those types of spaces. Let, we're going to have a, a guest in just a moment who's going to talk about industrial properties. I, I don't know how big Collier's is in that area, but, but certainly uh, warehousing and data centers and those kinds of properties seem to be doing very well. Yes, that's right. And, and industrial the warehouses, the types of properties you're talking about, did extremely well during the pandemic with the rise in e-commerce mm -hmm. and have continued to do well. There is a bit of a pullback. But it's not it's not a pullback relative to historical norms. The, the industrial markets are still uh, quite healthy. It's just a pullback versus the extreme uh, frothy markets in 21 right. and 22. Gil, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Gil Barak, CEO of Collier's U.S. and Latin America. We thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're going to stick with commercial real estate, as I mentioned there, and a particular segment that could see an uptick in demand because of those ongoing tensions a million miles away in the Red Sea. Joining us now to discuss is Lisa DeKnight, Managing Director of National Industrial Research at Newmark. Lisa, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Tyler. It's good to be here. You heard what Gil Barak of Colliers just said and how he characterized the uh, commercial or industrial space that, that you're here in part to talk about. Do you agree with what he said, that in other words, it's, it's healthy, uh, though maybe not as frothy as it was in the, in the pandemic years? I think that's a perfect characterization. At the end of 2023, we were at 5.5% vacancy nationwide in the industrial market. You know, that that is a, a substantial increase from where we were at all-time record lows during the pandemic, but it's still well below the long-term vacancy rate for the industrial market. We're in a very healthy spot. Lisa, uh, uh, our, our producer, Jeanette Chen, was, was trying to explain to me the connection that you see potentially between uh, uh, commercial properties, industrial properties, excuse me, uh, and the crisis or the, the, the war in the Middle East and the, and the disruptions of shipping uh, in the Red Sea. Can you explain it to me? I'll do my best. So what, what we have essentially happening now is geopolitics is supplanting economic efficiency as the primary driver of goods moving through the global supply chain. So what's happening in the Red Sea with the Suez Canal is actually coinciding at the same time that issues around drought-related conditions in the Panama Canal are essentially causing two critical arteries of trade to experience lots of disruptions. This is driving up maritime uh, transit times and costs. And a, a, a general kind of global instability in supply chains is in the long term further incentivizing a make where you sell paradigm 
in the United States and in partner countries. There are short-term implications as well that we can talk through, but the, the biggest takeaway from what is happening in the Red Sea, what's happening with the Panama Canal, is this is yet another set of circumstances in uh, a, a long chain that we've seen over the past few years that is going to be driving more domestic manufacturing growth. And, and I think in 50 years' time, we're really going to be looking back at mm -hmm. this early 2020s moment as the, the dramatic moment where a, a shift in where goods are produced in relation to where they are sold takes place. Yeah, make where you sell. That's very interesting. And there are also incentives in some of the recent legislation, the IRA, uh, the CHIPS Act, and so forth, to do that, to revitalize uh, domestic manufacturing. I, I guess what I'm hearing you say in part is that is that companies, whether they're manufacturers or, or retailers, whether it's a Costco or whatever, they don't want to get caught uh, with no inventory uh, because of disruptions in shipping, the supply chain disruptions. So they are, A, uh, buying from domestic sources where they can, and B, they're warehousing inventory so they're not caught without it. Am I right? You, you said it perfectly, and I'll add to that. The diversification of gateway ports of entry is really important here, and it's driving industrial demand uh, across the board. So, you know, uh, if, if shippers need to react reactively, I suppose, or proactively in terms of global supply chain disruptions, if you have logistics space in multiple port-serving markets across the country, you are able to, to pivot and be able to bring those goods in and move them to your end consumer quicker. It's a good mitigation strategy. So um, one of the things that, that I suppose um, we, should, we should be concerned about with the, with the issues in the Red Sea uh, is possible inflation. As, as shipping costs rise, it's true, isn't it, that, that goods costs are going to rise? This is something that, that we're paying very close attention to. You know, a, a really good metric of global shipping costs uh, across the board is the, the Freitos Baltic Index. And the Freitos Baltic Index is showing around 153% increase from the end of December to present day. Uh, and I, I think the, the main concern is that there's really no indication as to when uh, these particular set of disruptions to, to critical arteries of trade are going to be resolved. So that the longer that this persists, the more likely that these costs are passed on to the end consumer. And I'll add one more thing, because a lot of time-sensitive goods do not have the luxury, let's say, of waiting for a much longer travel time across the, around the Cape of Good Hope instead of going directly to the Suez Canal. A lot of firms are having to pivot to air freight to get time-sensitive goods to the end consumer on time. Air freight is around five to 10 times more expensive than containerized shipping. So there, there are a lot of cost increases that, depending on how long this persists, could have an impact on inflation. Lisa, you explained that so clearly. I'm very happy. I'm now, I understand it a lot better. And if this, no, I'm so if, glad to hear. If, if this managing director thing doesn't work out for you, you got a future in television, you're good. Lisa DeKnight, Newmark, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Coming up, last quarter, analysts said Google search saw no impact from chat GPT or Bing, none. And shares are up more than 11% since that release. But is that all about to change this quarter with Google reporting after the bell tomorrow? We'll take a look at why its dominance could finally be disrupted. That's next.
A monster week of earnings for tech uh, with Alphabet set to report tomorrow after the bell. But Google's search dominance could be disruptive as new AI-powered search startups crop up. Dieter Bosa has that in today's Tech Check. Dieter, you mean to tell me that these startups truly do pose a threat to the dominance of Google in search? It's a good question. How do you disrupt, you know, one of the greatest business models of all time? But it's more of an existential threat, I would say. Google search is not going anywhere anytime soon, but there are cracks. And Wall Street wonders if that could lead to Google falling behind in this AI race or having that golden goose advertising disrupted. Now, it may not be Bing, Microsoft's Bing, that Google needs to worry about. Rather, a new crop of generative AI startups that are native gen AI making a run at the king. We've talked about perplexity in the past. That's backed by the likes of Jeff Bezos and NVIDIA. Another one just on the scene is Arc. Um, it released Arc Search over the weekend, and we tried it out. We're going to show you a video. We searched Paris Olympics, and it read through six web pages and then neatly got them all together, laid out the dates, host city, new sports, among some other facts. No ads and a pretty clean user interface here. Let's contrast that with a traditional Google search on a smartphone. You'll see that there's a list of Twitter or X accounts up at the top, a lot of the same information, but you got to scroll down. This is more cluttered and it's harder to find. So Google's generative AI experimental search that's available for some users, it gives you a cleaner response, similar to that of ARCs and perplexities. But Tyler, the point here is that Google isn't willing to go all in, offer this to all of their users right now, because that could potentially cannibalize its business before it really figures out how to incorporate search and what it's going to do with advertising. So yes, these are very, very early days, and neither of these engines, perplexity or ARC, these new names, are going to make a dent in the market share right now. But it kind of tells Wall Street how Google search could be disrupted. You know, one of the things that I've found interesting as I have played around a little bit with uh, artificial intelligence, whether it's BARD or ChatGPT, is that it seems to excel when I ask it a question like, write me 500 words on the history uh, of the conflict in the Middle East, or write, tell me about uh, why Paris uh, is a great place for the Olympics. The things that are qualitative uh, mm -hmm. in nature in some cases. So what would you be looking for then? What do you want it to, or I guess are you wondering sort of what's the I'm, use case? What is it, where is it actually going to improve I'm businesses? I'm killing time, Dee. I'm killing <laughs> time. I'm actually, I'm usually looking to get educated as opposed to actually finding something. Right. You know what? I was actually uh, texting back and forth with the CEO and founder Perplexity this morning. And I'm saying, you know, who are you really seeing use your engine? Right. Because I think same for me, Tyler. I'm using it sort of as an assistant or a co-pilot when mm -hmm. I'm researching. But of course, you can't trust it entirely. So you got to go back and find all the sourcing. But he said that it's knowledge economy workers that are really using the app. And I hear the same thing around San Francisco. It People who are using it are actually using it to replace the Google search. And it's not that it's like all that much better than Google Bard or ChatGPT. It's that the interface is so much better. And I showed you the example from Arc. It's just cleaner. Arc. And there's not a whole bunch of other stuff on the I'm screen. I'm writing this down, Deidre. I'm writing ARK or ARC? ARC. Not to be confused with Kathy Wood's Arc. Okay. ARC and Perplexity. Those are sort of the two that are gaining some traction here in Silicon Valley. All right. Well, my perplexity will be uh, taken care of after this. Thank you, Deidre. Thank you very much. Coming up, Whirlpool has missed on revenue 11 of the past 20 quarters. Diageo facing Forex headwinds and falling freight and port volumes could spell trouble for UPS. We will have the trade on all three of those earnings reporters next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. And it's not just the mega cap tech names that report earnings this week. We've also got a couple of consumer names on deck. We're looking ahead to Whirlpool, Diageo, and UPS in today's earnings exchange. And here with our trades is Degas Wright, CIO at Decatur Capital Management, also a CNBC contributor. Degas, welcome. Good to have you with us. Let's start, shall we, with Whirlpool, where the shares are down roughly 5% in the past month. Home improvement spending slowing. Whirlpool cutting costs to ease margin pressures. What's your thought on Whirlpool? Yeah, Tyler, so our thought on Whirlpool is that it's actually scoring the bottom decile for expectations. Analysts have been downgrading the estimates for uh, Whirlpool to the tune of about 11% since November. Also, the profitability is in the bottom decile. Whirlpool has been, uh, revenue has been flat for 10 years. The margins are declining and supply costs are going up. So we actually have a very negative view of Whirlpool because we don't see a catalyst uh, for revenue nor profitability growth. Some things, uh, sometimes companies that are in the bottom decile are, are destined to stay that way for quite a while, I guess, right? Exactly. All right, let's move on to Diageo. Shares of the U.S.-based alcoholic beverage company down 16% in the past year. Who's not drinking? Uh, B of A downgraded the stock to neutral, citing the slowing sales in the U.S. in particular. Uh, consumer trade downs, foreign exchange headwinds. You stay, say, Digas, that this is still a buy for you. It is still a buy. Uh, we saw some weakness also in the Latin American markets. However, the profitability is actually in the top decile. It actually has a net margin of 22%. It has a very attractive 3% dividend yield. And also, let's look at valuation. It's coming in about 15 times, which is well below the 20 to 25 range. And also, it has 7% revenue growth. We like a strategy of focusing on high margin, premium brands such as Scotch, the Vodkas, the Gins. We really like the company and we think it's well positioned. You think it's well positioned. But what about the, the trend that, that people are imbibing less? And, and choosing uh, other exactly. kinds of drinks. What's happening is that they're also focusing on trying to, to take larger market share. Believe it or not, even though it is a, one of the top brands, it only has about 5% of market share. Mm -hmm. So what they're focused on is increasing that market share. And the market is uh, believed to grow about 9% a year. So if they can expand their market share with a growing of about 9%, it will still be a company that's going to generate free cash flow. All right, finally, let's move on to uh, UPS, which was the mystery chart we showed earlier. Uh, shares falling 16% in the past six months since reaching a deal with the Teamsters. And while Barclays notes labor inflation will be more manageable, near-term risks include lower Amazon volumes, increased efficiencies at competitor FedEx, among them. Degas, is there still opportunity at UPS? It's still opportunity at UPS because we're long-term uh, holders of UPS. And so what we're seeing is that even though with the pullback in the last uh, year or so, it still has free cash flow of about 10 cents for every $1 invested capital. It has a very attractive uh, dividend with a dividend yield of 4%. And so we are seeing that they're focusing on job, uh, the uh, labor uh, efficiencies, and also trying to grow the global markets. So we see as a long-term 
uh, investor that this could be an opportunity to buy at these uh, levels. All right, Degas, thank you. Thank you very much. Degas Wright, Decatur Capital Management. And that does it for the exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, Jeffries sees 14% upside in a consumer stock that's already up by 40. We'll have the name. Dom Chu getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.